News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is still governor somehow for another week. But that's about to change, and we'll have public advocate Jumani Williams back on shortly to talk about it. In the meantime, I'm here with Professor Christina Greer and Alex Lynn just to uh, round up what's been happening in the city this week. Alex, what's been happening? Well, uh, as we know, the past couple months has been like a big fight with trying to find permanent housing for homeless New Yorkers. Um, about Roughly 8,000 new units are available for permanent housing for homeless New Yorkers that are federally funded. And up until August 11th, um, homeless New Yorkers who had applied for permanent housing specifically with supportive services for mental illness were blocked from getting these particular new units federally funded. So now because of uh, public pressure and a whole bunch of stuff, they are now going to be eligible. There is no more kind of uh, red tape around people with mental illness um, to get these eight, roughly 8,000. So uh, you can read all about it in City Limits by our friend David Brand. Um, what else is going on? So vaccine enforcement now is full effect. Uh, a lot of the onus is falling on the bartenders and waiters and waitresses and people who aren't really management level in some of uh, these places, like I'm sure ticket takers and ushers and stuff. So we're going to see how that kind of plays out. Um, and are you saying that they're responsible for making sure that people show their vax cards or what, like what exactly are they supposed to be doing? Well, nobody really knows. So they're either responsible for making sure people show their vax cards or have the app or what, but like, the mayor announced that this was going to be a thing two weeks ago, and now everybody has scrambled to figure out, how, is it is this going to be the person that takes tickets at the door to the dive bar slash music venue? Or is this going to be the bartender that makes, you know, that in, in these small spaces? Or is this going to be a waitress when you sit down at a table? Like, and what are they looking for? Is there a protocol? Nobody really has one yet. Um. So the mayor today introduced what's seeming like uh, Thrive 2.0 uh, as coined by Katie Honan. Um, it's basically mental health services put onto a very glamorous website, um, very fancy website. And when you click on any particular part of this website, just pretty much brings you back to the same phone numbers that were always available, which was 911, 1-800-WELL-NYC, whatever it is. Um, the mayor's made like a huge deal of this because this website and this collecting of all the different programs comes with a pretty hefty price tag. But anything, the only new things that I'm really seeing are clubhouses, uh, spaces where people can go, but they're not published on the website. Uh, you'd have to call to find those places, mobile crisis teams. And just like there really isn't a lot out there for people who just need counseling unless they're in crisis. And we've seen this happen for months on end. I mean, personally, just trying to get any services as a pregnant person and then as a new mom, as far as counseling, there are just, there's red tape, there's wait lists, there's gruesome intake processes. And, um, and then, you know, for the 
privilege of four hundred dollars to uh, that that of course out of network in any insurance. Uh, you can be put on a wait list for some of the biggest centers. Like we're talking every center, um, the the wait lists are prohibitive to say the least. So I'm not sure how this new website is going to solve a lot of those problems, which are bigger problems. They're problems that have to do with hospital beds. They're problems that have to do with discharging people too quickly. And they're problems that frankly just have to do with us not having enough mental health and behavioral health care workers in the middle of a global pandemic yeah. as well. So here's a question though. I mean, we know that Shirlane McRae, the first lady of New York state, New York city has, this has been her pet project. We know that the price tag has been roughly $850 million there's very little data that is sort of kept up with how well this program is running. And then the word on the curb is that de Blasio wants to run for governor and sort of make this a signature piece of his accomplishments. How do you see that shaking out where it seems like we have this mammoth entity, a website to nowhere? We don't have any data as to how many New Yorkers have been assisted by Thrive NYC, and this is going to be a signature cornerstone of his possible gubernatorial campaign in a state that doesn't seem to be too impressed with the 109th mayor of New York City. I mean, the the opaque nature of a lot of these programs and the data around them is a huge problem because what they, what a lot of people who work in the industry say is that it points to the fact that we need a lot more support on these supportive services. So the pilot program where you have social workers going out for mental health crisis calls rather than police um, to make sure that people end up getting mental health care or hospital care and don't end up in a cell or in Rikers, um, that program, like, I've seen no data. I've definitely asked. I've emailed a whole bunch of times unless I FOIA request it. I mean, it's just... It's just not there. So does he have the numbers to support this? And what would those numbers even be? We know that there's a huge amount of fear right now uh, around severely mentally ill people um, being kind of on the street. That sometimes has to do with the homelessness problem, but more often than not has to do with a lack of beds that started in back in the Pataki era with the Burger Commission trying to, you know, shrink our hospital footprint. Um I mean, these are, he can't solve this alone and he can't stand on the back of a glitzy website and say, look what we were doing for all these mentally ill New Yorkers when kind of rightly so you have a conservative contingent that are pointing out a lot of people who are violent and saying, well, what, where are the services for them when he doesn't actually have a plan for services for them? As we're sort of still opening up, people are going to school for right now and the subways are getting more and more crowded. And and employment's about to end, or the the federally funded uh, unemployment is about to end, and people are being asked to go back into offices. And Delta variant, you know, fear is on the minds of everyone. Uh, next up, that we've got a shakeup in Harlem. Yeah, so I I was looking at. It uh, looks like um, Bill Perkins has lost his seat in Harlem. Uh, he will no longer be representing. Uh, the citizens of Harlem. And Harry, you know, we sort of talked about this, you know, months and months ago. But Bill Perkins, you know, there have been lots of complaints about whether or not he was an active member of city council, whether or not he was 
physically slash mentally able to properly represent the citizens of Harlem. And what seemed to happen time and time again, and we've seen this in other races, there's so many people who were eager to get rid of Bill Perkins. They never got together and said, hey, if the eight of us want this to happen, we should choose one and then come up with a strategy to get rid of Bill Perkins. And because that hadn't happened before, Bill Perkins always got reelected. We saw the same thing happen in this primary. It just so happens that uh, with a recount, um, a candidate was able to squeak by and we just found out uh, just a few, you know, what, hours, two days months, ago. Two months after the uh, primary ended, like the, that, 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 that close, that much recounting with this ranked choice system. Like it took a while, but, but this is the last result. Like the election is now complete. Right, two months later. And Kristen Richardson Jordan, uh, will be the new represent a democratic socialist who will be representing the citizens of Harlem. And I'm just always fascinated by the strategies that people uh, decide on where it's just, we saw this in the Bronx so many times. We see this oftentimes in ethnic politics where folks just can't seem to coalesce around one challenger to a problematic incumbent. And then the incumbent continuously stays in office. But I do feel like it's an end of an era for Harlem in many ways uh, because Bill Perkins was synonymous with kind of the Harlem leadership of, you know, Keith Wright and Charlie Rangel and Inez Dickinson. Uh, and he's he's lost his seat uh, from a new new challenger on, from the Democratic Socialists. So this would be a perfect transition into our conversation with public advocate Jumana Williams who talks about how much power is based in Brooklyn right now, about power moving to the uh, left in the city and maybe in the state and lots more. But we do have one more news tick to bring up first, uh, which is sort of double doozy. Uh, New York's population hit a record 8.8 million, according to the Census Bureau. It's as big as we've ever been. More than 600,000 additional residents since 2010. These are pre-COVID numbers. They're really striking. Um, people have seen for themselves that the, uh, the trains have been more crowded, the schools, all that. But uh, the number was much more than anticipated and really puts into relief uh, the hard work that, uh, that Bill de Blasio, Julie Menon, and many others put into making sure that every New Yorker who was here was counted which stands in stark contrast to Governor Andrew Cuomo pretty much just mailing this in and shrugging it off, which, by the way, meant New York lost a congressional seat that we would not have if yeah. 89 more people had been counted. Right. Clearly, those people who were not counted were mostly coming from outside of New York City. It's a, it's a real shame. Um, we have redistricting coming up. That's going to be super interesting. It also means all these people who just got elected to the council only get two years because then the whole map gets redrawn instead of the usual four. Lots more to come. But we'll get there in the uh, weeks, months, and years to come. And Yeah, and, you know, I just want to shout out to Zellner Myrie who came on the podcast and talked to us about the importance of filling out the census, uh, not just as our duties as New Yorkers, but what it really meant, the political ramifications, and the possibility that we could lose a seat. And so that's that's pretty dangerous. I can't wait to have Steve Romolowski on the, the podcast, Harry, because, you know, some of the preliminary data that I've looked at is obviously Brooklyn 
gained, rep- you know, gained population. However, the black population in Brooklyn seems to be shrinking. And so I'm curious to see what Steve's maps will tell us about kind of the movement of people in the city, but especially, you know, I do black politics. I care about black people deeply. Uh, I want to know where they're going and are they leaving freely or are they being pushed out? And so what that, what the, these census numbers actually tell us moving forward. And with that, we, we actually talk with Jumani about a bunch of this and about the, the rise of black political power in New York state, which in a fascinating way is coming just as the population numbers and right after Eric Adams' uh, victory, and he's now the presumptive 110th mayor of New York City, uh, all apologies to Curtis Sliwa and whoever else uh, thinks they're running. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it is striking to have uh, uh, th- th- this high watermark for black political power at the same time that the population numbers uh, are, are going in the other direction. Right. right. Don't forget, Curtis Sliwa has those cats. And that no-kill shelter policy, so we're going to get those animal advocates out uh, to uh, fight the good fight. I don't believe we have a cat census yet, which would be super-duper interesting. Uh, (laughs) Alex has a beautiful baby who was born too late to be counted, but will help us uh, 10 years from now in maintaining (laughs) political power and getting our our due share of funds. Right. Well, and I can't say anything about cats because... Friend of FAQ NYC, Alexis Grinnell, will come through the podcast, and essentially she's basically saying that I'm I'm just stalling. I need to just hurry up and get a cat, but I really want a Maine Coon, and that's a whole nother that's a whole nother episode. So thanks for tuning in. We'll do we'll have to do the cats episode. <laughs> well, I think if we do a cats episode, we have to have Liz Smith, we have to have Alexis Grinnell, we have to have Curtis Lewa. That panel alone, I think, would break the internet. So um All right, yeah. ideas. <laughs> yes, yeah, send us your ideas of of really interesting panels that we could have on (laughs) FAQ NYC that wouldn't normally go together. Welcome to FAQ. I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and I'm here with my other co-host, Harry Siegel. Hello, Harry Siegel. Hello, Christina Greer, professor. (laughs) And this week, we have the public advocate of New York City, Jumani Williams. Welcome, public advocate. Thank you so much for coming back on FAQ NYC. Peace and blessing, love and light. Very happy to be here. Always a pleasure. We are always happy to have you here. We can't wait. Um, so we know that your time is precious. You got a lot of big things cooking. So let's just jump right in. Um, we know that uh, the other day you met with your former opponent, uh, now soon to be governor of New York State, Kathy Hochul. Can you tell us a little bit about how that meeting went? Uh, you know, first, I, I very much appreciate her reaching out to me uh, to have a meeting. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's going to be history made. She's going to be the first uh, woman governor of New York State. Fortunately, there was some history made again with this governor uh, resigning, even though that's what many of us had hoped uh, would happen. And so I think it was great for her to reach out, and we had a conversation, me as a citywide and her as a statewide, about the issues that are most important to New Yorkers, uh, including you know, reopening safely, vaccine hesitancy, public safety, gun violence, uh, the excluded workers fund, rental assistance for tenants and for homeowners. Uh, and so we talked about a, a whole bunch of issues. And so I think it was uh, very productive. So you, you've you never been shy about um, your feelings about the soon-to-be former Governor Cuomo uh, and his ineffectiveness and his lack of progressive bona fides. Uh, when you met with Kathy, Ho- Kathy Hochul, did you feel as though this was someone that you could work with, and we know that she's on the hunt for a lieutenant governor. Is that something that came up in the conversation? 
Um, that is uh, not the position I'm looking at, but I, I would say uh, I, it's been, you know, I've been pretty clear that there was differences in how I feel the state was going and looking at ways to, to challenge this governor. And I, as you mentioned, I ran for lieutenant governor in 2018 with some very clear differences about how we both thought the state should go and how that role should be and what's needed in Albany. And those don't just go away overnight. Um, what I've been trying to do is save some of those questions for after. I think right now the state, the situation we're in, probably we should all be focusing on making sure that there's a transition in power uh, that's clean, uh, that this moment happens, and then we can talk about some of those differences going forward. But I am very happy that we have a clean break from uh, I, I, what I think was just a very bad time uh, in Albany under this governor, and we have an opportunity to have new leadership. So you said that's not the position you're looking for. Is there a position you are looking for that you'd like to share with us and our few uh, listeners? Oh, I, I, you know, it's going to be similar to to what I said. I think it's clear. I've always, before this report, long before there, I was trying to uh, figure out how to challenge this governor in particular. Um, I think there was a few of us really trying to be clear about how bad he was for the state of New York, while many people were um, either explicitly or silently uh, enabling that. Um, and, you know, I'm still actively considering a, a gubernatorial run, uh, but I think the time for that conversation is really after uh, this happens and after the transition happens. There's, there's a lot to consider with it, so there's nothing definitive, but um, I think that the, the better time to talk about that is in a few weeks. Okay, so please be sure to come back on FAQ NYC when that time is right to discuss this in just I'm a few weeks. I'm looking very much forward to that conversation. <laughs> Taking a step back, this is not the time to make any definitive announcements, but it's something you're thinking about. We're coming off of a decade of Andrew Cuomo. Like, generally speaking, what, what, what is the vision you see for New York State that it needs going forward? and that we haven't got to under the Democrats we've had in recent years? Well, I think we need a bold, a progressive, principled uh, leadership. Um, and I want to make sure I always use progressive. It's funny, I see people at the same time saying they're progressive while trying to push back on progressives or whatever that means. So it's very interesting. I think progressive values are blue-collar values, progressive values, uh, black and brown working uh, people's values. So um, it's important. But more importantly, I want folks to understand that Andrew Cuomo doesn't exist by himself. Uh, there were people and structures and infrastructure that enabled that to happen. People who uh, were very often concerned about their themselves and their political career. And someone like Andrew feeds off that kind of fear and feeds off the ability to bully people like that. And what we need to do is change how we view that and how we allow that to happen. My hope is that is the huge lesson that comes out of this, and that, that we change the infrastructure that's there that enables that behavior. And I think there is uh, an opportunity to do that in the, in the coming years. And it's important because if we had done that, we might not have been hit so hard as we did uh, during this COVID. There's a reason we were the epicenter of the epicenter. And it was very hard to move uh, the governor on issues that he needed to be moved on. So when Kathy Hochul has been talking in recent days and preparing to become governor, she keeps making this split between Cuomo as a person and the environment he uh, 
be built up and the Cuomo administration's accomplishments. She's saying, I was in Western New York. I didn't know nothing about nothing about his uh, personal behavior and that of the people around him. But, uh, you know, I look at some of these things uh, uh, with, with guns, with gay marriage, uh, with some of the virus response. And I, I want to continue that. And I'm curious, from your perspective, I mean, you were just sort of getting into both parts. Was, was the issue the uh, Cuomo's personality and the, uh, the sort of toxic culture that he built around that? Uh, was it his, uh, was his accomplishments um, and how he handled the legislature where he was often a check against progressives? Was it both? Like, like how much of the problem does getting rid of his personality and maybe some of the senior leadership around him solve? And what does that leave that still needs to get addressed now? There was a specific special toxicity uh, to uh, a Cuomo administration. And so we have to be clear about that. It was pervasive, not just in the abhorrent stuff we saw in the sexual harassment and how uh, the women were treated there in the report, but it was pervasive in how he governed, period. I believe that helping New York, New York State uh, was kind of the secondary thing to making sure that uh, his presence was known and it was felt. <laughs> On top of that, I don't think he had uh, good, good ideas. And so, so I used to say, I will say this, I used to say that I thought maybe he was uh, a good bureaucrat and perhaps he knew how to have the trains run on time, but he didn't know how to build a new train system, uh, which is what we needed. But it turns out that wasn't even true. Um, I think he was not a good bureaucrat. Uh, we saw that in how we got through COVID. We saw that with the marijuana justice. We saw that with, uh, see that still with uh, how we're trying to administer the rental assistance. What we've seen uh, with his special toxicity, even if we took it aside, <laughs> is in Albany and an infrastructure uh, that is about power, is about using fear, is about incumbency protection. That is what has allowed so many things to happen and frankly, not to happen. Even as I had traveled through this state before in, in, when I was running for Lieutenant Governor, you saw the issues remarkably the same in the cities that I went, I, it was surprised. And the person and people who were preventing these issues from being fixed was in Albany, usually due to uh, who's able to give money, who's able to make sure you don't have an opponent, uh, all of these things. And that's, it's frustrating to watch in real time. It's frustrating to, to see what's going on and have these conversations. Uh, and I've been very clear that there's a different type of politics that needs to happen. And I have to you know, be honest, that is whether uh, we're talking about um, a white establishment, uh, people of more color establishment, black establishment. We have to move past the just establishment way of doing things. It has been very harmful to the masses of people who live in this state. And you can't just slip in a different person and think that everything is going to change unless you have people who are saying fundamentally the way we have done politics doesn't work and we have to change that. Just one more question here before we, we get away from the statewide stuff. And with, with your, you've run a lot of campaigns. Uh, you represent those campaigns, but I know you have a, a tactician's hat. Putting that on for a minute, one of the complications here is that suddenly we have prominent downstate black officials in positions of real power. 
the attorney general, uh, the, the leaders of both houses of the legislature. There's always been in New York State where, where the city is the lion's share of things, even more so after this new census count, which Cuomo really screwed up, by the way, costing us a congressional seat. Um, but there's always been some, some, some sorts of upstate, downstate balance there. Um, and suddenly it seems like in terms of representation, there's a big shift in ways that may make it complicated for a New York City politician to run and may make it comp complicated for a black candidate to run. And I'd just be interested in hearing your thoughts about that as, as in conversation, this, this keeps coming up from other people I'm talking to. There's, a, there's, a, there's always issues with getting elected, period. Uh, I think Tish James has shown um, that uh, it's not just about representation. She's done an amazing job as the Attorney General, and I don't think anyone uh, uh, can deny that. For me, my message it, it transcends a lot of things. I believe representation is important, so I don't want to uh, uh, deny that. But my message has been the need to shake this up, the need to not do it uh, as politics as usual. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that has actually been very receptive. Um, and so uh, uh, that's a message that I'm going to continue to do wherever I am uh, and whatever I'm doing. Uh, to be honest, the way I do this stuff, I'm actually surprised I was in the city where I like the official, <laughs> the way I speak and the way I, I push back. Um, uh, but I believe it's, it's actually what people want. We've been giving folks, uh, I think, what we think they want. And, and you know, I, I mean, a perfect example is kind of this defund conversation. <laughs> Uh, where people um, are like afraid of having a conversation and they're pretending like this is a, a interloper is pushing this conversation and instead of grabbing it and saying there's a conversation behind that that's actually been black led for, for quite some time. Our job is not to pick apart how these people are saying it uh, and tell people how to express their trauma. Our job is to take that trauma and translate it. We end up delegitimizing an honest conversation that actually most people would agree with. Uh, and that's usually for political expediency. And that's the type of thing that we have to push back on, regardless of where you come from. So before we, we come back to New York City, I do want to stick with New York State really quickly, because what you're laying out and proposing is, I think, a fundamentally different way of looking at Albany and looking at governance uh, than we have in the past. And so from your conversation with Kathy Hochul, do you feel like she understands that shift that needs to happen. I mean, this is someone who has been lieutenant governor uh, since 2014. And in some ways, she uh, is an establishment candidate. Uh, she can say that she doesn't talk to the governor, sure, but she still served as lieutenant governor of New York State. Did you feel confident post-conversation that she understands the shift that needs to occur? So, again, I think some of this conversation is better uh after uh the 24th when the transition happened i do want to honor the historic moment of it i will say uh, i think the conversation was productive i found uh, her to be receptive to the things that um uh, i brought up and the, uh the things that uh the things that have been pushing for for quite some time so i'm excited about that you know elections come and they go and in between you have to govern and so as a public advocate i would like to do that with the next uh, governor of the state of New York. Um, what I'm excited about is I believe people more and more are starting to see how that shift has to occur. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the mayoral race in, in New York City. Uh, but from Buffalo to Brooklyn, um, there were a lot of people who came out and voted uh, for people who are uh, seeing that we have to change this and do it in a different way. 
I believe that hunger is there. Uh, I believe that hunger was misguided a few years ago on the federal level. Uh, but we have seen it that people really don't want this uh, the way that it's been playing out. And it hasn't helped the vast majority of folks. And I think whoever can kind of latch on to that message and show people, you know, as much as we're, we're trying to say uh, we're doing this for the people and we're representing them, their lives are not really getting the results that we as elected officials are saying. So I'm excited about the people of New York State um, and what it is that they're starting to demand from people who are running for office. So let's leave the Shady Mountains of Albany just quickly and come on down to New York City and talk about our good friend, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Uh, He's the presumptive 110th mayor of New York City. Uh, We still have an election in November, so hopefully our listeners will come up with a voting plan right now. Uh, You you represented uh, the citizens of Brooklyn. Obviously, Eric Adams has deep roots in Brooklyn as well. Have you spoken to the... Democratic nominee recently? And if so, how have those conversations gone and what are you two cooking up? Uh, yes, I have. Um, and we actually have a fairly longstanding uh, relationship based on, on what you just described. I'm, uh, I'm happy, actually, that I still represent Brooklyn uh, in, uh, as part of the city. You know, I will say this. It's clear that uh, you know, my, my endorsement uh, for number one, uh, my ranking was a mile while uh, to the surprise of some, but really not to many others, Eric Adams was on my rank list. I think I was one of the few people who actually put who they were going to be voting for. Um, and, and Eric was on there, and, uh, and there's a reason for that. I've worked with Eric on a whole host of issues, uh, from the abuses of uh, Stop, Question, and Frisk, really trying to approach gun violence from a holistic way. Last year alone, when many people shied away uh, from really pushing back on these executives and how they were using, uh, how they were being wrong about what they're doing with COVID. It was Eric Adams that joined me. He's on the letter to the Department of Justice asking to look into the executives and how they're doing, how they're uh, botching the, uh, the, the pandemic. Uh, so my hope is that, and you know, I've said this too, my, my hope is that is, that, that is the Eric that shows up at the City Hall. There's obviously some things that we don't see eye to eye on, and some of those were magnified during the campaign. Uh, that tends to happen sometimes. My hope is that that the campaign is over, that stays there, and that Eric Adams that I worked on all these issues is the one that shows up. Uh, but frankly, I think there's a lot more commonality than people believe. Uh, and my hope is that at least we can work on those commonalities first. Uh, and I think that's a, a real possibility. Speaking of commonalities, it just hit me very belatedly as you were speaking that the top three mayoral candidates, uh, as it turned out, uh, Maya Wiley, Catherine Garcia, and Eric Adams, with not that much space between them, are all from Brooklyn. You're a citywide elected official from Brooklyn. We got Schumer, Adams, Jeffries, James, maybe we'll talk in a minute about Adams and uh, Jeffrey's relationship. But, but really, my question for you is, speaking of balance of power stuff, does Brooklyn have too much of it right now? You know, if, I, if you're looking at it objectively, there is, uh, uh, I think that is a question that people can legitimately ask. Uh, I happen to be from Brooklyn. Uh, I, I often joke, I, I reek of Brooklyn wherever I go. I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, 
But, you know, from another bar, that is a legitimate question to ask. And whoever's running for a position or trying to be appointed position has to make the case of why um, they should still be voted on or chosen, given what you just put out there. But we have seen swings of this nature, um, you know, generation to generation, the basis of power, the basis where people are coming from, uh, you do tend to switch back and forth. And um, right now it has, uh, as you pointed out, swung to Brooklyn. So let's, let's stick with, I guess, our, our friends in Brooklyn. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about causality and causation when I move to Brooklyn, all of a sudden the power base comes to Brooklyn. I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there. But, <laughs> but let's talk about your relationship with Tish James. Uh, who's the attorney general, first black woman ever elected statewide in the history of New York State. Uh, Many people after her pretty concise report have said that obviously if she decided to throw her hat in the ring, she would be a a large contender, even though there is no precedent of black female governors in the history of the United States. There's never been one, but she's clearly coming in with with some goodwill. Uh, She, I don't believe, identifies herself as a progressive candidate, so she possibly looks a little more... um, purple, like the state uh, has historically been. Uh, what's your working relationship with Tish James? And uh, I know you're going to come back in a few weeks and talk to us about some gubernatorial stuff. Um, but where do you see her chances uh, if she decides to run against Kathy Hochul and what I'm assuming will be many other folks? I think everyone would agree uh, that she's done an a awesome job as the attorney general. And I'm one of those. We have a, a great uh, working relationship. I would guess you, you would ask her, but I would guess she would identify herself uh, as a progressive, minimally uh, believing uh, in, in progressive ideals. Um, she has to make a decision of what she wants to do. My understanding right now is uh, she's doing uh, the job of the attorney general. She's, she's doing it pretty well. So it's, it's tough to speculate on those things. Uh, I think the, you know, it's, it's always funny when people <laughs> ask if this, the state is ready for this or the country's ready for that. And I found uh, most of the times nobody's ready for it until it happens. Right. I mean, and I, I agree with that sentiment. I think there's just a difference when there's no precedent. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah that, that, is, that is the case. Uh, I would say even for my, myself, I've, most things that I've done, I've been told I can't or should not. That includes when I first ran for uh, council against an incumbent with six people in the race. Uh, and so um, that was it's not unprecedented, but it's very minimal precedent. Um, I have a, I don't talk about it often, but I have a couple of uh, firsts under my belt, you know, first uh, Grenadian elected official, Grenadian American, uh, the first person at the time actually believed in the nation with Tourette syndrome uh, in, uh, in, in the race. And so all those things, uh, were said were, were going to be difficult. And I would even say it's not as big as what you're describing. Just how I present has always been uh, a thing. I was told uh, I, too much of an activist, can't wear my T-shirt, can't wear my backpack, can't do this. No buttons, no flair. <laughs> Nothing. Um, it's, just, it's just not, you know, I, I really believe I, I try to come to this uh, in a different way for me. I would love to win all elections I run, um, but the most important to me is run them as me. And I believe that what I'm putting forth is actually right and people will receive it. And I'm hoping that we elect more people that believe that. I think we'd be better off. 
than just the folks that kind of get in it, move up the ladder, um, do what they're told to do to get this position, wait for it to be their turn. Uh, those kind of words have got us to where we are now. That doesn't mean um, you should just, you know, there is something to be said about learning about the process and getting involved with people who are working in it. So I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, but that type of pipeline, I think, hasn't gotten us to where we want to go. So trying and doing some stuff different uh, is is great. And I think people are receptive to it. Again, this city, how it looks, who was elected uh, from the city council on up, um, I think people are receiving that message in a positive way. So uh, I just have one more, Carrie, but um, we had uh, Manhattan Borough President, former mayoral candidate Scott Stringer on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, and he said that he really would have welcomed and wished he had a Tish James report, uh, something that could really dig into the accusations and allegations um, that were presented against him during the campaign. Uh, and essentially, I have to go replay the tape, but said, you know, implied that he got a raw deal um, compared to uh, other people who had a little more due process. Do you think that Scott Stringer got a raw deal? Well, what I do want to say, uh, want to make sure that I mention just what Tish James represents as the AG and the history made there. I don't want to downplay that uh, uh, for people, for women, for black women, for my stepdaughter who's 13 uh, and my new wife. Um, the representation is amazing. But what she's done as AG goes beyond that and supersedes that. So I don't want to just pigeonhole that into that. Um, I think um, the governor said something similar. I think the governor was looking forward to that um, investigation and they encouraged that. So I wouldn't, I don't know if that would be what I would look to. Um, I can't speak to the specifics of um, Scott's case and what Scott is thinking. The only thing I can do is speak from, from me and you know, what I try to do. And I, as a cisgendered straight male, um, how we've gone through life, um, is very real. And there are lessons that we should have learned through that journey. Um, and when something came up when I was running for a public advocate, um, I took that opportunity uh, to acknowledge that, to acknowledge lessons learned, um, and acknowledge how I can show up better as a cisgender straight male uh, in the society and how I have. That's the tact I took, and I believe uh, that's a tact we should all take, not just in this situation, though, uh, when we're talking about race, when we're talking about uh, LGBTQ issues, when we're talking about all of those issues, the person who comes to it with privilege has gone through life with that privilege and probably has helped pave the way for a structure uh, that has not been the most equitable to those who don't have that privilege. And so what I always say, you don't have to be racist to push forward a system steeped in racism. And the same goes for misogyny, the same goes for homophobia, the same goes for transphobia. And so if something is, is called out um, and, you know, someone wants to call you in, hopefully not necessarily called out, we should just take that opportunity to learn about how we could have shown up better at that moment in time and then just move forward. And that's that's I guess that's what I would say without necessarily speaking to the specifics of, of what he said. And it's a, we have to do it in a way that allows that to happen because we wanna make space for everyone to grow even as we acknowledge 
um, the harm uh, that's done. I think both of those things are important. I think part of what's throwing people off about these things is in your case, right? I believe there was there was reporting about a domestic dispute 10 years prior. In Scott Stringer's case, uh, you know, a, a woman, Jane Kim, came out with, with allegations about his behavior 20 years prior. And then a second woman uh, with more about 25 years when he was 30, when he was running a bar. So for cisgendered straight men, for all sorts of candidates, um, is an election like the appropriate time to have these things come out and be understood by the public? Is there anything that should be done differently about that? I know the Working Families Party, for instance, when they dropped Stringer, uh, said that, that uh, it was his failure, as he said, he, he had not done the things that Kim said he had to acknowledge the harm he'd caused that led them to that decision. Uh, there hadn't been an investigation. Uh, there, there were some questions, I think pretty serious ones, about some of the claims she'd put out. Uh, is, is there any answer to that, or is this just sort of unavoidable in the uh, nature of politics, that, that, that people are going to drop things without any context, at a great remove in time, and then it's just a question of how you handle that and how the electorate responds? I think it is unfortunate. Um, the way it's being thrown about, um, it doesn't make it less real or uh, less harmful to the folks who uh, experienced it. You can always question, is there a better time to come out? You can also question if, if it had come out at another time, would it have gotten the attention to deal with the harm that was done? So there's a lot of questions there. I would say both the things you brought up with me or with Scott is amazingly different than what was the environment that was created by um, Andrew Cuomo. There's a, there's a lot of differences there. Um, but to your point, you know, I, at that moment, I think the best thing to do is, is to acknowledge the privilege that exists and any lessons that you've learned and acknowledge any harm that could have occurred. I think we also have to just we have to create space for fairness in the conversation, right? But we have to do it while acknowledging the harm that someone experienced when they're bringing this up. That takes um, a lot of people wanting to have an honest conversation. The problem with the election time is people are not interested in an honest conversation. They're interested in the gotcha. Um, but to the extent that it's, it may continue happening, we have to obviously do it um, uh, with uh, with with concern to all parties involved. And again, what I, and this is, and I, you know, I'm honest, I'm so glad that I had the right folks around me. As, as I started to um, push back, it, it, for me, and I, you know, I'm probably gonna make my team nervous now <laughs> as I'm speaking, but you know, immediately when stuff was coming out, it was really, I was gonna push back because I didn't do the things that people were trying to insinuate. And I was like, no, no, nah, I'm gonna have these people come and speak and they're gonna say this. And people sat me down, some very, Thankful I had these intelligent women around me. And the question to me was, you don't have to acknowledge anything you didn't do, but they asked me two very important questions. Is there a power dynamic in a relationship with a cisgendered straight male like yourself? You know, the answer is probably yes. There, I said, yes. Is there a way you could have shown up differently? Yes. That's it. Let's acknowledge that to be true. And 
we can try to break down the infrastructures of the environment that has allowed these things to carry on. And I think you can ask those questions the same way with race, the same way with uh, gender, the same way with sexual orientation, the same way with a whole host of issues. And I think if you can kind of break it down that way, because I think what happens is immediately people are saying, I'm not a racist, I'm not misogynist, I'm not transphobic, I'm not homophobic. And it's like, hold on, um, one, you actually might be, so we can say that, but, uh, but besides the point, you don't have to be to be able to show up better to deal with the systems that exist that are those things. And I think that's a space that we have to get into in a better way. Sometimes the elections are not good at promoting that, but those of us who really are earnest about trying to address this, we have to create those spaces. Uh, well, I want to say, as always, and you know, when we have uh, elected officials on, I want to say thank you for your public service. Obviously, every time we go through a campaign season, I think it becomes more and more apparent uh, that those who run for office and then those who are selected to serve uh, do a great service for our city and our state. Obviously, you all sacrifice quite a bit um, with your families. We talked about this with Scott Stringer just a few weeks ago. Um, and you sort of stole our thunder. We wanted to congratulate you on your recent nuptials in July <laughs> to fabulous India. Um, but I, I also hope that you'll come back on FAQ NYC once Cuomo one signs his resignation letter. <laughs> Two, Kathy Hochul is actually sworn in as our 55th governor of New York State. And three, as we move forward with a pending Eric Adams mayoralty and a Kathy Hochul gubernatorial run slash uh, governance year in change. Uh, do you have any projections as to who she'll choose as her lieutenant governor? Uh, I absolutely do not. Or any recommendations for her? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, you know, I don't, I hear the same name uh, that everybody is uh, uh, hearing. I'm trying very hard not to win and, and kind of those things to allow her the space uh, she needs to, to make the decision she thinks is best for her and for the state. Well, thank you so much, Public Advocate Jumani Williams, for coming on FAQ NYC. Thanks again. It's always always great to have you on. Congrats again. Thank you. Thank you. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brookhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, public advocate Jumani Williams. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>